Revelation chapter 6. recent article in Psychology Today had this title, The Internet Makes You Stupid and Shallow. I thought that was quite a good title for an article. The Internet Makes You Stupid and Shallow. And if there is one thing that the internet and social media has taught us with its obsession with celebrity gossip and entertainment and 33 character tweets and memes is the appalling shallowness of our age and the Western world in the 21st century. Because we sense that we have a purpose, but we're not searching for that purpose as a society. Our souls rage against death, but we're not searching for life. We shudder at catastrophes, the catastrophes of war and famine and disease, but we won't look at these things face-to-face, to determine their source and, and their meaning. The 21st century Western way is now to await our turn to die and to amuse ourselves until then with food and Netflix and trust that everything will work itself out in the end. Now, the Bible does not shy away from painful and difficult matters. We might, but the Bible does not. It takes us by the hand and it makes us look hard at hard things. It explains the causes of these things. It explains the meaning of these things. And that's why you're here this morning, isn't it? If you wanted to be entertained this morning, there's plenty of places up on Elizabeth Street. We can order a nice breakfast or going to the farmer's market in town. You didn't come to be entertained, you've come to worship our Lord Jesus Christ and to understand the purpose of your life and to understand what death is and to understand what is going on in the world. You want to understand hard things. You don't want to look away from war and catastrophe and famine and disease. You, you, you want to look at these things and understand them and learn how to rightly respond to them. And this is what Revelation chapter 6 does. It's a very hard chapter. I don't think it's hard to understand, but its message is hard to take. And Revelation 6 says, Come, Come and look and look at war and famine and death and look at these things face to face and see where they come from and understand their purpose and look at how a merciful God has freed you from these things. What we see in the book of Revelation is that our sinful world is careering towards final and complete judgment before the throne of Jesus Christ. What is God doing about that? If the world is careering towards 
judgment. What is God doing about that? Well, we see in Revelation 6 that he sends catastrophes before that final judgment, and he sends them for a reason and for a purpose. Now, right up front, we need to note that some people say that the catastrophes that we see in Revelation 6 have already happened in the past. And some would say that they, they, they happened with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the hands of the Roman army. And that view has been called preterism, that these catastrophes are all in the past. Others see these things as happening at a future time called the Great Tribulation. And those who hold to that view we might call dispensationalists. And so we see that there is one group who say, say well, these catastrophes have already happened. Another group is saying, well, uh, they're going to happen at a distinct time in the future. And the problem with that, besides the fact that, that Revelation doesn't say that they're happening in the past or, or just in the future, the problem is, if, if you believe that, then you can't read Revelation 6 as applying to you here and now, but to uh, have this passage only has its direct relevance to Christians in the past or to Christians in the future. But what we saw in Revelation 1 verse 1 is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants was what must soon take place things that were on the cusp of happening. And in chapter 1, verse 3, we read that the reader of this book must take these things to heart because the time is near. They're on the cusp of happening. And in chapter 1, verse 19, John is commanded to write what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So the events of of Chapter 6 are the events of now and the events of chapter 7, as we'll soon see, will take place a little after this. The point of what I'm saying right up front is that no one should read what we're about to read as a description of things past or of a, a description of things in a remote future, but as a description of things here and now. This is God pulling aside the curtains to see what is happening now. This is immediately relevant to you and I. Last week we saw the lamb on the throne with a... He took the scroll from the Father, a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. Remember that from last week. And this scroll is the scroll of God's plan for history. And we saw that the lamb was worthy to break the seals of that scroll. The lamb is the one who will enact God's plan for now and the future. And now we see the lamb actually beginning to break the seals and to unfurl, unfold God's plan for now and the future. So last week we saw that scroll, we saw the Lamb was worthy to open that scroll and now we see that scroll being steadily open. And we're going to see 
the first four of those seals being broken. And with each seal comes what? A horse, a different coloured horse. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, now you take us by the hand and you show us what is happening in the world around us and in the heavens. And you are bringing us face to face this morning with judgment, war, famine, disease, death and the grave. And these are hard things to look at, Father, but you know that we need to look at them and you show us these things out of love. And so please, open our eyes and give us listening ears to what you're saying to us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 6, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Who is this rider on the white horse? This is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that is proven when we turn now to Revelation 19. So please turn with me to Revelation 19. And we see this same rider on the white horse. Revelation 19 verse 11. A more full description of this same person. I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The white horse is Jesus Christ himself riding out across the world, bringing judgment upon sin. Conquering sin and conquering evil. And we're going to see his judgments upon sin, which, which some have called anticipatory judgments. So there's going to be a final judgment, but we see Jesus bringing these judgments in advance upon the earth for the sin of the world. And we see Jesus, through these anticipatory judgments, awakening people to their sin, awakening people to the consequences of sin. We see Jesus freeing people from their sin. And so this is the, the first rider, the, the rider on the white horse who was given a crown, uh, who um, rides out as a conqueror bent on, conqu on conquest. 
It is Jesus Christ himself riding out to destroy sin and evil and to free people from sin and evil, to wake people up to the judgment of God that is to come. That is the white horseman, our Lord Jesus. Then, in verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. And this red horse, in fact, in the original, it doesn't say it's red, it just says it's fiery, a fiery horse. This fiery horse is, brings a rider who brings war upon the earth. Now, I've always had an interest in war. And as a kid, I read untold books about war. I still do. I've got a real fascination with it. But I think when I was younger, I used to think that there was something glamorous about it, something almost romantic about war, something exciting and thrilling about war. But the older I get and the more I see, there's nothing glamorous or exciting about war. One of the most famous generals of the Civil War, General Sherman, said famously, war is hell. And he said, war is cruelty. It is only those who have never heard a shot, never heard the shriek and groans of the wounded and lacerated that cry aloud for more blood, more vengeance, more desolation. War is a dreadful thing. It's dreadful for those who fight in it. It's dreadful for those around them. And it's always women and children who suffer most through war. Now, where does war come from? Well, the Bible says that war comes from the sin of humanity. It's our sin that, that, that gives rise to war, our evil, our innate brutality. It was the, the sinful pride of Nebuchadnezzar that caused him to take his armies from Babylon to conquer Israel and to destroy Jerusalem. It was the sinful pride and brutality of Caesar that caused him to take his Roman legions across to what is today France and, and England and to slay hundreds of thousands of people. It was the, the brutality and pride of Adolf Hitler that sent out millions of German soldiers to kill millions of people and in turn to be killed themselves. War comes from sin. War comes from the brutality of, of brutal human beings. Proud human beings. But what Revelation teaches us is that war is, is a second reason. There's a second reason why war comes. We see here war being sent from the throne of heaven. Do you see that? Do you see that 
it's when the lamb opens that second seal that war is unleashed. And where does this red fiery horse come from? It comes from the throne. It comes from the throne room of God. And the book of Revelation says that its rider was given power. Given power from whom? It's God who's given power to this rider to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. Where does his sword come from? He was given a large sword. So the book of Revelation says that war is sent onto the earth from the throne room of God. Why would God send war? The wages of sin is death. And the Lord brings death very often by war. And he did that with his servant Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. In fact, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant three times in the book of Jeremiah. He says that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant to wage war and to bring my terrible judgments upon my people. War is caused by the violence and evil of human beings. And war is sent from the throne room of God to bring judgment upon a sinful earth. And the violence of war is a wake-up call to a rebellious earth. That things are wrong, things are broken. We need God's mercy. That we're all facing death. The red horse should drive us to the lamb who was slain. That's why the red horse is sent, to drive us to the lamb who was slain. And then we see this third horse in verse 5. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. In other words... This horse is unleashed by the lamb who opens that, that breaks open that third seal and he is commanded out by those four living creatures around the throne of God. He is sent from the throne of God. And I looked and there before me was a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, one kilogram of wheat for a day's wages and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. The fiery horse brings war, the black horse brings famine. When a loaf of bread or a kilogram of bread costs a day's wages. So in modern terms, a, kilo, a loaf of bread costing two to three hundred dollars, then you know that the, the, there is severe famine in the land. When bread costs three hundred kilogram, three hundred dollars per kilogram, you know that there is a severe shortage of food. 
and barley was the, the poor man's food. Wealthier people bought bread, poor people bought barley. So uh, a poor man might spend a day's wages, two to three hundred dollars, buying just three kilograms of this poor man's food, barley, to feed his family. These are famine conditions that are described here. The black horse brings famine. Now, where does famine come from? Well, like war, famine comes from human greed, sinfulness. In a 2012 edition of the Journal of Sustainable Agriculture, the editorial pointed out that there is one and a half times as much food in the world as is needed. That the world could be fed one and a half times over. That there was enough food in 2012 for 10 billion people. So if we extrapolate to now, there'd be enough food for 11 billion people, although there's seven to eight billion people on Earth. In other words, there's plenty of food. There's tons of food, more than we can all eat. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us because Paul, in his sermon to the city of Lystra in Acts 14, said, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God provides lots of food. Why do people die of famine? It's because we are not sharing it. We don't have the will to share it. We're not willing to go to the, the, the great expense and, and, and trouble that you need to go to to make sure that this food is, is distributed to all those who need it. Famine. People die of famine because of human selfishness and an unwillingness to help. People die of famine because of proud leaders who bring famine to their country. Last year, a number of us went to Cambodia. And it was kind of fun to, to, to see them selling frogs. And uh, what else were there? Crickets, fried crickets you can buy on the side of the road. And um, spiders, scorpions. And, and it's kind of exciting. For, well, you, I didn't eat a, a spider. Uh, I, I was a wimp. I wouldn't eat a spider or even a cricket. But this is, this is something that people in Cambodia, visitors to Cambodia quite like to do, to buy these exotic foods. Why do people in Cambodia still fry up frogs, crickets and spiders? It's because that's all they had to eat. This is not a tourist attraction. This is all the food they had to eat in the 1970s when Pol Pot decided to lead his nation into communism and decided that it was better that people not eat and starve to death than to eat and not be communists. And so people starve because of human greed and arrogance and, and, and terrible dictators. And we've seen terrible famines in history caused by 
proud and brutal dictators. But what we see here in Revelation chapter 6 is that famine is also sent from the throne. The black horse rides out when the lamb breaks the seal. The black horse is called out by the the living creatures around the throne. And in the Bible, we do see God bringing famine on people. We see seven years of famine brought on the nation of Egypt. We see a terrible famine brought on Israel during the days of Elijah. And so the Bible does not give us simplistic answers to hard questions. Where does war come from? War comes from evil men and women. And war is sent from the throne of God. Where does famine come from? Famine comes from people's greed and wickedness. And famine is sent, the black horse is sent from the throne. God brings famine in his, as an anticipatory judgment upon the earth. The black horse, like the red horse, is intended to wake us up to the brokenness of this world and to drive us to the lamb who was slain. And there's one more horse, and this is the worst, worst of the lot. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. And the scholars debate over what exactly the color of this horse is. But everyone agrees that it's the color of death. It's the pale green color of corpse. This is the horse of death. And death comes with his squire. Who's his squire? Hades, the grave, the place where the dead are buried. And death is given four dreadful tools. The sword, hunger, plague, and wild animals. And notice again that this, this fourth rider called death is unleashed by the lamb who breaks open that fourth seal and is sent out by the, the living creatures around the throne. And he is given power, it says here. He was given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Am I the only one who who thinks that this is hard? This is hard. Because this is saying to us and, and to the world that these four horsemen, Christ riding out in judgment, the red horse of war and the black horse of famine and the pale horse of death, were not sent out from Rome at the command of a a pagan emperor. 
sent out from heaven at the command of the Lamb. And that is really driven home right at the end of chapter 6. Look there at verse 16 and 17. If, 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 you're, if you're not quite convinced that these horsemen are, are, are sent from the throne, then look at those last two verses. Because at the future judgment, people will say, will call to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? War, famine, and death are manifestations of the wrath of the Lamb. And what a, what a, that phrase should pierce the hearts of us all, the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is anger for sin and the judgment he brings for sin. The book of Revelation teaches what the whole Bible teaches, that, that, that God is a sovereign God. And that means that everything that happens in God's universe happens at the decree of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, the Lord says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign. There's nothing that happens on this earth that is outside the sovereign decision and decree of God. And the Bible does not flinch from saying that even war, famine, plague, and death are decreed by God as his judgments upon a sinful world. Listen to these words from Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address. This is just before the end of the Civil War. And I'm reading this quote. It's wonderfully eloquent. Abraham Lincoln was always beautiful in the way he spoke. But it has such a clear grasp of the sovereignty of God and all that we've seen this morning. Listen to, to what he said right before the end of the Civil War. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills, hear that? If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And Lincoln understood what the Bible was teaching. But the scourge of war and famine and death are not random tragedies visited on the earth by blind chaos. The human race is not in the hands of a blind and black chaos. We are all in the hands of a holy, righteous, 
and just God who decrees war, famine, and death as the wages of sin and to wake us up to our sin so that we won't be lost at the second death because there's something worse than death. There's something worse than war, the Bible says. There's something worse than famine, the Bible says. There's something worse than the grave, the Bible says, and that is the second death, eternal death in the lake of fire. That is far, far worse. And so God, in his mercy, sends out these four riders to wake us up and to say, can't you see the judgment you're facing? Can't you see that you need my mercy and my grace? Can't you see that you need to be saved from that second death? Because look, look, look again at verse 8. Look again at verse 8. It says there that death and Hades were given, a pow- given power over what? A fourth of the earth. A fourth of the earth. What does that mean? Come in, kids. You guys want to grab a seat? Now, that, that, that's not a fine detail. That's, that's, that's not a little detail that we can just uh, skip over. These things, death was given a power over a fourth of the earth. And that means that God's catastrophic warning judgments are remarkably and mercifully restrained. God had every right to destroy the whole earth with these, these riders but it's a quarter, it's a quarter. It's a fraction of what is deserved. And so this tells us that as awful as these writers are, they are remarkably restrained by God. They could have gone a lot further, but he restrains them. And this reminds us the the intention of these writers being sent out is not just a a mission of judgment, but even more so a mission of mercy to wake up a sleeping world careering towards the second death and final destruction. These riders were sent to drive us to the Lamb, the Lamb who will one day soon carry us before the throne of God. Look there at the end of chapter 7. And I finish with this before we come to the communion table. This is is what God wants. God wakes us up and sends us to the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, raised for sinners, so that we could be finally freed from war and famine and death and the grave. That's God's great intention. That's God's great plan. It's to free a great multitude, an uncountable multitude, the book of Revelation says, from death and the grave.
that a great multitude will stand before God as described here in chapter 7, verse 15. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. You see, famine banished. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's God's plan, brothers and sisters. is to free us from death and to free us from the catastrophe of death and to wipe away every tear as we find forgiveness and life with the Lamb who was slain. We're going to come in just a moment to the Lord's table. We're going to look again at the lamb who was slain. Our musicians are going to lead us in a song before we do that.